Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Uh, Bruce, this is not going to be our typical episode of The Audible. Um, I feel like I've been saying that a lot over the last several months. And uh, at first that was due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This week, the, the, the overwhelming uh, topic that's on everybody's minds in our country right now the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer and all of the anger and protests that have erupted since then. Uh, I know this is a college football podcast. We're going to talk college football uh, later on in the podcast, but we thought it was important to hear from some guests who could talk about their own experiences and, and have a real discussion about the issues related to race that have, um, that have just come to the forefront in our country this week. Yeah. I mean, it's been a heartbreaking week. That is everything that is, has unfolded. And, uh, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are looking for some, some, some calming voices and some, some introspection and everything like that. And we've, look, we've seen a lot of people speaking out about racial, uh, injustice and a lot of the issues African-Americans face, uh, probably more than we've, ever seen, at least in the sports world, a lot of people have taken to social media, but it's, uh, um, you know, everything is, especially coming out of the pandemic where you've had 10 weeks of people being essentially, you know, cooped up and there's economic concerns and certainly health concerns. So I think that is, has made everything even more complicated and, 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 uh, you know, so we wanted to, we wanted to, to kind of, uh, dig into this a little more and, and, and use the audible this week to kind of, to talk about some of these issues. Yeah. Because I, what I've been trying to do over the last week as much as possible is listen and learn, listen and read and learn. Um, we're all angry. Um, and, and you can put out a statement on Twitter or whatnot, but I want to hear more about the experience of being black in this country and, 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 um, and how racism affects people on an everyday basis. We actually have a really good story in the athletic. I would encourage people to read where several of our colleagues who are black wrote about their own personal experiences, firsthand experiences encountering racism. And that includes a couple of our college football writers, David Ubbin and Kalen Jones. And I mean, the, the things they're describing are things that from their everyday life that, um, that you and I certainly wouldn't have to deal with. Uh, it really is eye-opening. In terms of our lineup for today, we're going to start with Nevada coach Jay Norvell. Uh, Jay is one of only 14 African-American FBS head coaches. Uh, he wrote a very impassioned letter about this topic and that we want to get into with him. Also worth noting, his dad, Merritt Norvell, was uh, the Michigan State's AD at one point, but also uh, went to work for after that for a search firm and specialized in um, helping young black coaches try to enter the profession, move up in the profession. Uh, so he has a um, unique perspective on, on the way this has affected football directly. After that, Bill Curry, the former coach of Georgia Tech, 
Kentucky, Alabama, eventually Georgia State, ESPN broadcaster, but but more pertinently for the purposes of this podcast, a author and very outspoken, uh, kind of rare in his profession, a white coach from the South who is extremely passionate about issues of race and certainly has been making his voice heard in the past week. So I think you're going to find that to be a very interesting interview as well. And then we will answer some mailbag questions that we've been storing up for the last couple of weeks and also talk about um, some actual football news from this past week, which is Justin Ross, Clemson star receiver, out for the season. So uh, first up, Jay Norvell. All right, Stu, we're pleased to be joined by our first guest. It is Jay Norvell. He is the head coach of University of Nevada. And we've seen a lot of coaches uh, you know, issue statements and tweet out things. But but Coach Norvell, who is African-American, he gave a very uh, a, a detailed and deep perspective, I thought, in what he shared in his thoughts on everything that's been going on around the country, especially in the last few days. Uh, coach, thanks for joining us today on The Audible. Thanks. Appreciate it. What would you like people to know? Obviously, they they see the news, but and for college football fans, I think they I think there's a lot of people who look and see their players maybe talking about issues. And sometimes it registers with them. And sometimes, quite honestly, I'm not sure that it does in in the face of everything that's going on now. And and you speaking up and other coaches speaking up, what would you want people to have the takeaway uh, from this going forward? Well, let's let's just all agree to start that this is a very complicated time in history. And, uh, you know, initially I I hesitated to make a statement because in this world, uh, you know, we have these events, we have events come up all the time and you don't want to be reactive. And I'm very cautious about social media. Social media is a very dangerous medium. In many ways, it's, it's very good. But in other ways, uh, it's very manipulative. And, and I think we have to be careful with it. Um, I talk to my players. I talk to my players every day. And, um, you know, I, I'm the head football coach at the University of Nevada. You know, I've won a one of, I think, 14 African-American head coaches in Division One, And um, I feel like I have a responsibility uh, to educate my players. And I, I talk to them. I talk to their parents. I've talked to our recruits. And uh, over the events of the weekend, watching the news and seeing everything that was going on, I just felt like it it was important for me to make a statement and that's a personal choice that everybody has to make. But, um, you know, I just like to stay with things that are factual. And, uh, the fact is that George Floyd and I'm on Arbery, uh, were basically murdered and, um, both were unarmed and, it was a very public thing. Both of their murders were broadcast on national TV. And there's been a lot of talk about 
um, the injustices to black America. And I think a lot of our community doesn't witness that. Um, I think a lot of the white community is insulated from it. Um, but these things are not new to black Americans uh, in this country. Um, I have a little different perspective than my players. Uh, I'm over 50 years old. I've been uh, experiencing these things for five decades. And when I made my statement, I thought it was important that we, I kind of cried out to politicians and uh, community leaders, but really uh, every one of us has, has a responsibility to stand up firm against violence and injustice. And right now we're talking about race. And so I just went on to talk about, um, you know, I think a lot of our, our country doesn't understand what it's like to be black in America. And I just, I just used a couple of my own personal thoughts. You know, I was always told as a child from my father that I always had to be better. I had to be twice as good at the job to get an opportunity in this country. So I was taught at an early age. You know, I grew up hearing stories about my grandfather being thrown out of school when he was 10 years old. And the teacher told him he didn't need education because he was black. Um, you know, I heard stories about my mother, um, you know, seeing her high school counselor and the advisor telling her, hey, you don't need to, you don't need these classes. You're not going to college. You don't need to go to college. You're black. You know, when my mother was traveling as a child, they couldn't stop and use the bathroom because, you know, they were colored back then. And, uh, you know, my father was a football player. He chose to go to the University of Wisconsin in 1959 because they were one of the few schools playing black quarterbacks at the time. And my father was a high school quarterback from Southern Illinois. And that's why I chose Wisconsin. Um, you know, I'm a fortunate. Um, my father went to school. Uh, you know, he was a community organizer uh, for these issues back in the late 60s. You know, when, when Martin Luther King and Malcolm X came to the University of Wisconsin, my father met with them. He was the one that set up the meetings. He was the one that set up their talks to the student body. Um, and so I just shared some of my, you know, my feelings. And, you know, the facts are that the first slaves came to this country in 1619 in Jamestown. Uh, it's estimated over six to seven million African slaves were brought to this country uh, to help build the country for labor. It wasn't until April 8th, 1864, uh, that the 13th Amendment was passed to free the slaves. It wasn't until 18, and that's 200 years of slavery before that happened. Uh, then, then 1817, or 1870, the 15th Amendment was passed, giving African Americans the right to vote in this country. 
It wasn't, you know, African-Americans were here for over 200 years before they even had the right to vote. And since 1870 to 2020, you know, there's been all kind of different forms and shades and levels of racism that black Americans have had to deal with in their daily lives. And obviously this podcast is not long enough to talk about all those things, but that's, that's the facts. And, um, you know, I felt very passionate about it. I had a really emotional meeting with my team. I read that letter to them and it was really for them. It was really for them. And, and, uh, I wanted the players to know that I was, I supported all of them. Um, I wanted the black players to know that I understand the frustration that's going on right now. And I think we all have a responsibility to stand up uh, to uh, violence and injustice in a nonviolent way. Um, I'm very, I feel very strongly about our today's athlete being gentlemen. Um, you know, I read history. You know, one of the things that I think is missing a little bit right now is that, um, you know, when, when Martin Luther King protested in the 60s, um, they were very organized. They spent a lot of time educating the protesters about how to act and how to handle a protest and how to handle it properly. Um, you know, today we see all these different factions coming together and many of them don't have any uh, stake in the issues that are being protested. And so it's just a very, it's a very complicated time. And, uh, you know, I'm concerned for the safety of my players and I'm, I'm concerned about the safety of all Americans um, at this time uh, because it's a very, very uh, complicated and emotionally charged time. And so it hurts me. I'm an American. I'm an African-American. I care deeply about my community. I care deeply about my country. But I think I also have an ob obligation when I see violence and I see injustice that I stand firm against it and, uh, and, and do it the right way. So that was the motivation for me making a statement. I think one of the things I think uh, because of social media, everybody has a voice and people get criticized when they speak out and, and uh, um, so, you know, I, I wanted to say things the way I wanted to say it. It wasn't my agent. It wasn't uh, um, my bosses. I got great. I got great leadership here at Nevada. Uh, my president, Mark Johnson, and, and, and my athletic director, Doug Newth, are fabulous men of character. They're incredibly supportive of me. Um, and, you know, I, I could go on and on and on. I mean, in my journey as a head coach, I thought I'd be a head coach 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, I'd known you a long time, Bruce, and we've crossed paths. Um, but 
you know, there's just a lot of things that happen along the way that, that uh, and for whatever reason, uh, the right factors came into play for me here at Nevada. And the last thing I'd like to say, uh, you know, I am so proud of my university. Um, you know, the University of Nevada has a, has a, has a long history of, of uh, being at the forefront of integration. You know, uh, black athletes were playing here in the 40s. Uh, Marion Motley came from here uh, and was one of the first great African-American players at Nevada, went on to the National Football League and had an important role of, of breaking the color line in the National Football League. Um, and, you know, the very first uh, college athlete that played a collegiate game in the state of Oklahoma, which I spent many years coaching as an assistant, was from the University of Nevada and played uh, uh, Tulsa. And uh, there was a lot of resistance to that. So I'm really proud of our history here at Nevada. Um, you know, black athletes were playing here in the 40s. And I know in the Southwest Conference, my college coach, Hayden Fry, who was an incredibly courageous man, um, signed the first black athlete in the Southwest Conference, Jerry Levias, in 1969, I believe it was. And so, you know, almost 25 years after we were integrated here at Nevada, the Southwest Conference at SMU integrated. And so, you know, those are just facts. And, and so, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just uh, passionate about my kids. I love my players. I'm serious about being an educator and uh, the role that I have with, with these young people. And, um, you know, I just, it's only my, my point of view. Uh, but I did feel like that I do have a significant role here in my state, you know, I mean, we have a governor here and uh, we have two major universities and I happen to be a head football coach at one of the major universities in our state. And I feel like I have an obligation to speak out against violence and injustice, especially when it pertains to our kids. Coach, one of the one of the things you said, uh, both in your in your letter and to us just now, that really resonated with me, is when you said, "I don't think much of our community understands what it means to be black in this country." That has been a big takeaway, personal takeaway for me. Is that as much as I thought I did understand that, I I didn't, and and you see that in the reaction of when we see just how angry people are about that video that we saw it's one thing for me as a white person to watch that and go oh that's awful but we see so many um whether it's on twitter or elsewhere comments from black men especially young black men who can relate to that who have maybe they haven't had that exact experience obviously but they have had situations where the police singled them out because of their race or maybe it wasn't the police maybe it was another part of society what has been the feedback you've gotten from your players um, as, in terms of the reaction this has set off for them? Well, just I've had many conversations with my kids and, you know, 
you know, I, I, we're at the University of Nevada. We have kids from California. We have kids from the Bay Area and Oakland. We have kids from uh, uh, Southern California, Los Angeles. Um, and, uh, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in, in a college town in Madison, Wisconsin. Obviously, my upbringing was very different. Um, and, but we've, we've got kids that have lost multiple siblings to the gang violence. Um, we have kids that have much more violent stories, much more uh, family debilitating stories than I have. But the thing that makes us common, I was on the phone with my, my aunt Sunday night before I made this con- these statements on, uh, on, on Monday morning and she's 87 years old and she's an, spent her whole life as an educator. And uh, she says, she tells her students there is not a day in her life where she didn't go into any situation knowing that she was a little bit different and she had to handle things different. And, um, and I think every black American can relate to that. Um, and, and, and like I said, it's just, it's one of the things when I was thinking about making a statement, I, I belabored it for several days because it's not something you can respond to in a couple sentences or a paragraph. I mean, it's a lifetime of frustration. Um, and there's so many instances that could be rattled off. Um, And those are just some simple examples, but I did feel it was meaningful to put in the statement, my own personal feelings, uh, because it's what it, it, what it's what made the statement even necessarily necessary to do. I didn't want to just make a statement that was something regurgitated off of what somebody else has said. I didn't feel that was necessary. Um, But for my own kids, you know, the the authenticity of my own feelings and thoughts was important. And and like I said, I shared it with them first before I even posted it. And I actually shared it with friends of mine, and they gave me some suggestions to change it. And I did. I just sent it. And um, because I wanted it to be... I wanted it to be for me. So, um, you know, for what it's worth, it's just, uh, you know, just my thoughts at the time. And, and, uh, but I do think we're, we're in a very dangerous time, you know, uh, you know, I, I read all the time and, and, uh, social media is, um, not what people think it is all the time. And uh, I mean, there are, there are factors working. I mean, there are algorithms of, of information that are tracking everything we say and do on social media. And um, we just got to be careful that we're not manipulated by that in our daily lives. And it's already happened. I mean, you could see it in our politics um, in every way. And we just have to be careful to put it in its place because our young people give it way too much weight. I talk to them all the time 
you know, our young people are completely connected to their social media and they can't even separate themselves from it. And so I talk to them all the time that that's, it's not real. It's a tool and uh, don't, don't give it too much weight in your life because if you do, uh, you can be manipulated by it. And, uh, you know, life is very difficult enough uh, to have to, to, to bear the weight of what every individual on this planet has to think on social media. It's, it's, it's uh, very, very uh, complicated, you know, is the best way to put it. So, For you personally, with your, your dad's role in, in not just in football and in your life, but in the coaching world, um, how do you put that into perspective now, maybe the generation he grew up in with the generation? I mean, you were on people's radar for a long time before you got a chance, as you said, yeah. um, to, to give that into context. You know, my dad, my dad is an amazing man. He, he's got his doctorate in education from Wisconsin, and um, he became an athletic director at Michigan State. Um, but he spent a good portion of his life trying to help people and educate them to be better professionally. Um, he's done a lot of coaching, coaching uh, symposiums for African-American coaches to help train and educate them to succeed in this business. Um, and so, you know, I've watched him my whole life um, and tried to emulate him. I feel like I fall very short of the things that he's accomplished just in the community um, and what he did for his communities. Uh, you know, as an activist, he was a president of the NCAA for a long time. And uh, so I just take his example and try to do the best I can in my role. And, uh, but he's, he's had a great influence on, on, uh, on all people and especially, particularly African-American coaches, he's still very involved. And, and uh, so, you know, I, I've just tried to emulate him and take the great example that he has set and uh, try to use it in, in my own life's work. Well, you mentioned yourself thinking, as we talked about, you know, all the various um, forms of racism that you've encountered during your lifetime, you mentioned thinking you would have been a head coach 20 years ago, um, you, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you mentioned that number 14, you're one of 14 African-American head coaches, which is barely 10% of FBS. And, right. and even that is an improvement, unfortunately, over where we were, uh, even a year or two ago. Um, the NFL obviously has an even, uh, as big, if not bigger an issue right now in terms of the number of black head coaches they have, um, I mean, can you just describe to us a little bit how frustrating that's been as you've tried to advance in your career and realizing that, you know, you would think we're past this by now. We clearly aren't. How that continues to hold uh, black coaches back. Well, I think it's 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 a reflection of our our bigger society. Um, many of the decision makers that hire black coaches are not black. So, um, you know, I think uh, for that to change, there has to be an education and an understanding for the people in the hiring process uh, to, 
to create a bigger pool of, of, of candidates, you know, so much of college football is, is, uh, is influenced by boosters because that's where the money is. And so again, majority of the boosters are not black. And so um, many times these people just want uh, their, their coach to, to emulate them, their background and their history. So that's, that's a, that's a very difficult issue. Um, but, but uh, you know, for me personally, I just, I just think uh, it was a matter of time before the right combination uh, fell for me. And, and, and it, let's be, let's be honest. There's a lot of assistant coaches, black and white that never become head coaches that are very capable, very competent. So I don't want to, think that I'm unique in that regard, but um, it just took the right uh, mixture of, of influences for me to get an opportunity. And, you know, my first head coaching interview, I was working for the Indianapolis Colts in the late nineties. And, and I was a finalist at Bowling Green and, and uh, I, the guy that ended up getting a job was, was uh, Urban Meyer. And I've always thought, wondered what it would, my career would look like if I would have gotten that job. And I was coaching, uh, uh, you know, Marvin Harrison and Reggie Wayne at the Indianapolis Colts and was with Peyton Manning and felt that I was ready for that job. Uh, but, you know, it is, it is what it is. And, and, uh, you know, you, you, you live and learn and, and, uh, and, and over the years, I've, I've, I've had over a dozen head coaching interviews. And, um, but I feel blessed uh, that I have this opportunity. I get to pour my life's work into this job, and, and um, we're excited. I mean, we're excited to play this season. We're hoping that this virus settles down so we can, uh, so we can play because we've, we've, we've built a, a team that's I feel is ready to compete for a championship. So really looking forward to that opportunity. All right, Jay. Well, we obviously uh, will look forward to the season and uh, obviously it's been a a crazy off season and uh, we hope you stay safe and really appreciate your time and your perspective uh, today. We joining us on the audible. Awesome. Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate you guys. Thanks coach. Thank you so much. All right. We appreciate Coach Norvell for sharing his, his time and his, certainly his perspective. Uh, we're going to go on to our next guest. I know we usually don't have two guests on one show, but obviously, we, as we said, this is kind of a different different podcast for us this week. Uh, I really thought Bill Curry's voice would be, uh, and, and, and all of his life experiences and what he, what he has gone through, uh, where he's come from, and really how his life has changed and the impact people have made on him. And as Stu said earlier in the intro, he really does speak out about a lot of issues in ways that we usually do not see uh, old football coaches talking and taking to social media. So uh, without further ado, we're going to get to our next guest, Bill Curry.
All right, Stu, we're pleased to be joined by our next guest, Bill Curry. Bill and I worked together, full disclosure, at ESPN a long time ago, and I've always felt that Bill was kind of the moral conscience of football coaches. Um, maybe that's not, maybe that's that's too cliche of a generalization, but Bill's perspective to me is really fascinating because uh, he grew up in his football career and and was on segregated teams, right, Bill, until you went to the NFL and the Green Bay Packers, correct? Utterly segregated, that's right. A child of the Deep South, and Bill's uh, Bill's perspective is a fascinating one, and he has been very, um, he's spoken out on a lot of issues over, over time, but especially in the last decade as well. And I thought it would be great to have Bill on to share not only his, his perspective, but also kind of get his thoughts on things that maybe trouble him and things that that I think we could we could uh, find some optimism hopefully in every everything that has gone on in the last I don't know 72 hours or so um, Bill when you when you're watching the TV now and you're seeing this and it's not just one part of the country it is all over the country um, what goes through your mind now it's an indictment of our country, and it's um, sadly accurate, and um, it's been going on for 400 years, and I got a real creepy feeling, and God knows I hope I'm wrong, but I got a bad feeling if it weren't for cameras and the videos, I don't think we'd be seeing it now. I hope I'm wrong about that, but you can't continue to take a segment of your population and treat them as the other and treat them as if they are somehow less than human and get away with it forever. Um, the power structure, whoever that is, it, it includes all white people uh, because we've all had a share in the guilt uh, one way or the other, even if just by being bystanders. But We've all watched this happen. We've known that it happened. It, it happened to a teammate of mine years ago, and we didn't do enough about it. That bothers me a lot. And um, Andrew Young has been a great mentor to me for the last 40 years since I went to Georgia Tech as a head coach. And to have, have him handy, uh, available, was amazing. He volunteered to, to help me, and I, I certainly was accepting. But he has said recently, we're either going to pull this together as brothers and sisters, all different races, religions, creeds, pigmentations, national origins, and we're either going to get through this together or we're going to all, to all die together as fools. And he's exactly right, as usual. Bill, you've talked in the past many times, you've written about um, that your experiences were really, they really date to when you went to play for the Packers and Vince Lombardi, and he had no tolerance for racism, which was probably not the norm at that time among football coaches. And, and um, it, that was almost, that was over 50 years ago. Here we are today. Um, you tweeted uh, this past week, my generation had a chance to change much of this illogical hatred and we whiffed, ignoring chances to change old racist attitudes. Though there has been progress in some areas, in other ways we are back to the 60s. No excuse. I'm partially responsible, 
humbled and sorry. Tell, tell us more, like, to knowing that it's been 50 years, when you see what happened this week, you know, how frustrating it is that, that in some ways it feels like we haven't made progress? Well, when I went to the Packers, I had never been in a huddle with an African-American person. And um, I didn't want anybody to know that uh, because it was certainly uh, Coach Lombardi. You didn't have to know that he had the policy of not uh, tolerating prejudice. Uh, all you had to do is look at a team picture. And there were more African-American players on the Packers. There were 10 African-American players on a 40-man roster when I got there. There had been one when he went there. It wasn't an accident. He didn't say much about it. But he had been discriminated against because of his Italian origins. And he simply w would not talk. And it, didn't, it wasn't a competitive thing. This is my opinion now. Although the African-American players he had <laughs> happened to be named Willie Wood and Herb Adderley and Willie Davis, and uh, most of them were in the Hall of Fame. And nobody could beat us. And the other teams had quotas of one or two African-American players or none. And they bragged about it. Now, that's not all the other teams, but it was some of them. And it was, uh, it was terrifying to me because I thought, you know what? These guys are smart. That's the first thing I realized. They're going to look at me, listen to my southern accent. They're going to injure me and send me home, and I don't blame them. Well, that's not what they did. Willie Davis actually singled me out and came and talked to me, encouraged me, embraced me, taught me how to function as a National Football League player and, and how to practice on the field and changed my life forever. When I got to the Baltimore Colts a couple of years later, John Mackey, the great tight end, um, future Hall of Famer also, um, I, for reasons I still don't understand, John took me in, and I became his um, associate in the NFL Players Association, and then I took over for him as president of the NFL Players, and that was another life-changing experience because – you had to put your fear aside, walk the picket line with African-American and white guys trying to take on the NFL. And, of course, we weren't very successful, but we set the stage for some later gains. But all of that was done by guys who had nothing to gain by helping a snot-nosed white kid from College Park, Georgia. And so I have felt indebted ever since, and I've tried to give back. I just feel like there's so much more I could have done and probably should have. Bill, from all the people you talk to, I have, I have a, curious about this, especially as things are going now, because you work not just as a college coach, but then you worked around around high school kids in, in, in the state of Tennessee, I remember, uh, probably 15 years ago or so. And um, now some of those kids are, are, are men, uh, and just like all your former players are now. I'm curious, though, a lot of the discourse that we see, and it, it, it certainly... Uh, drifts into issues of 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 race feel like they often get everything gets politicized even the covid stuff got politicized in a hurry and i feel like things go from become devolve into left and right more than right and wrong as matter of fact do you think that is too general a way of of looking at 
this now as to one of the problems that we're dealing with? No, I don't. I, I feel like that's uh, absolutely accurate, and it hits you smack in the face whether you like it or not, uh, or whether you wish to question it or not, because um, the literal physical advantages of certain medical equipment are being denied one of the political parties. That's human lives going down the tubes every day because of politics. So it's not not hard to see. And uh, although we didn't have a, a pandemic during Watergate, I was in Washington during Watergate, and I saw that whole thing unfold with the hatred and the Vietnam War. And that's, that's another very complex uh, issue, obviously. But when the politics become involved and the money becomes involved, the big bucks are going to call the shots. And that's when the real tragedies begin to occur in numbers. And we're witnessing 100,000 deaths of American citizens. And that's uh, a big part of that. Without getting into individual names and finger pointing and blaming, somebody made decisions that helped cause that to happen. Bill, one of the fascinating um, things about you is from your past is that you were uh, you were in Atlanta at the time Martin Luther King was assassinated, and you marched in his funeral. Um, what when when what's going on right now? When you see what's going on right now in this country, and you think back to him and clearly he was a very important figure for you i mean what would he think about what's going on right now well i've, I've got an insight into dr king because of andrew young who was by his side uh, most all of the way through that civil rights movement um the rest of us read about it uh yes carolyn and i did walk in his funeral but we didn't go out and walk across the Pettus Bridge in Alabama and show up at Memphis and things like we could have. We were having our family. We had a baby girl. I was trying to make it in the NFL. Uh, those are just the realities of life. But when we did do that, uh, I had this sense that um, there was a sense of hope that day. Uh, we had a governor at the time who uh, – sequestered himself into the state capitol, wouldn't come out and greet the people that were marching. His name was Lester Maddox, and he was uh, an avowed racist, and that was embarrassing to me. Um, but there was a sense of um, we're going to go change things. And then within a month's time, and this just occurred to me this morning, I just remembered the timing of this and how profoundly it affected the life of Bill Curry and really the life of my family. It wasn't a month later, I got a phone call from John Mackey, my teammate on the Baltimore Colts. And we were, we had only been friends for a year or so, but he said, you got to come to New York city. We're getting ready to sit down with the NFL owners and I got to have somebody to guard my backside. And I, so I flew to New York and I spent the next couple of months or however long we were up there, literally guarding the backside of John Mackey, the great John Mackey, who was the most brilliant and the best leader we ever had for the NFL players. Um, and in so doing, I learned some things 
because he wasn't the only African-American guy. I mean, he was the president, but Kermit Alexander was there. Alan Page was there. And we had other very powerful figures. And just by being in the room, I learned a lot about how things work. And I, work, and I, I realized if you were a Caucasian and if you were walking around scared to state the proper principles, you weren't going to accomplish anything. So the fear went away immediately because I had to make a choice. And then I had all these wonderful teams through the years. And I had the privilege of sharing with them the fact that we weren't going to tolerate racism and um, we were going to accept each other just like we are. And I saw guys come around. I hear from them today. To this day, I hear from them almost every day. Hey, Bill, um, before we let you go, there's uh, some more tragic news that had come out of college football world uh, Monday. We're taping this on Tuesday morning, but a coach you know really well and uh, an SEC legend, Pat Dye, passed away. A longtime Auburn coach, a great player at Georgia. Um, For people who maybe are from our audience don't remember Pat Dye as a coach and maybe you've only heard him maybe on Feinbaum show. Tell us a little bit more about, about your impressions of him and, and who Pat Dye was. If you ask any one of uh, us coaches about another one of us coaches, if we played against each other a lot, then there's only one thing that comes to mind. And this is, this is part of our insanity. And it is that uh, we could never beat Pat Dye's teams. Wherever I was, whatever we did, we got beat every time we played against Pat Dye. So uh, for me to say anything other than I have great respect for him as a football coach would be less than honest. He was a, he was a great coach. He, he really was. Uh, when I saw him play in college, I was, a, I was a high school senior when he was a senior at Georgia. And the score of the Georgia-Georgia Tech game that year was 7-6. to six. And the extra point was blocked by Pat Dye, who played guard, but he was so fast, they brought him off the corner. I mean, he literally lined up as a corner, as I recall, and blocked the extra point and won the game for his team. So, I mean, he had such speed and quickness, and a player like that wouldn't be a guard in today's football. He'd probably be a linebacker, but I guarantee he'd be playing. So he was a, he was a fine player. And then um, – uh, there was a, a youth home in North Alabama operated by an Alabama, a former Alabama player named John Croyle, who's a, a dear, wonderful man who's taking care of an awful lot of young people that uh, nobody else wanted. And Pat and his wife were very active in helping raise funds. Uh, and he and I participated together in some things on that. And I was most impressed at those functions. And so, we're going we're gonna to miss Pat Dye, and uh, he was, was a great competitor and uh, contributed a lot in that state. I'm glad we got your perspective on him and on a course of uh, the, the very important discussions about race right now in the country. Bill, we can't thank you enough for joining us today. Anytime. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. I wish I had better answers. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the hard – that is the – the sad thing about the saddest thing about this is really right now it's just I feel like there's there's a lot of energy around it and I don't know exactly you know what what that translates to um, but we'd encourage uh, we'd encourage our audience if you haven't uh, if you don't if you haven't read Bill's book uh, the ten men you meet in the huddle lessons of a football life it's been around for a, 
uh, probably a decade now, but it's, I think it's, it's something that a lot of people would really find fascinating, especially now. Well, thank you for that. I, I just believe that people of goodwill will come together and we'll get this thing fixed because the alternative is really, really bad. Yeah. All right. Follow Bill at, at Coach Bill Curry. Again, that's at Coach Bill Curry. Bill, it's always a pleasure to have you. We appreciate you taking some time to share, share your wisdom with us. Thanks. My privilege. We really thank Bill Curry for coming on. And, and certainly at the end there, you heard him uh, share his thoughts on Pat Dye. That was obviously very significant news. Uh, in particular, the SEC part of the country. Um, there was also news in college football this week, unexpected news, um, when Davo Sweeney had his Zoom call with reporters on Monday. Um, it came out that Justin Ross, their star receiver, uh, probably was going to be a preseason All-American this year, um, diagnosed with congenital fusion of the spine, uh, a very serious condition only found out about it because he got a stinger in practice and they gave him and they had to do an x-ray he will undergo surgery for that and he will be out this season and i mean hopefully he'll be able to restore his college football career it's not a certainty but clemson was my overwhelming number one team going into the year so as great as justin ross is i'm not sure losing a receiver i mean one thing if you're losing trevor lawrence but losing a receiver is enough to drop them uh, but I will say, I, I, yes, Clemson reloads. They have a very good young talent at receiver. But this is about as inexperienced as they'll be at that position going into a season in a long time. It always seemed like there was some continuity there uh, from one season to the next as they've gone through just um, an incredible run of receivers. But it's not just Justin Ross they're losing. They're also losing T. Higgins and Amari Rogers. So pretty much... You know, all of the guys that you saw catching passes for them last year. I think I saw actually that Travis Etienne is their leading returning receiver, their running back. So um, if they were in the SEC, maybe you think twice about that, the, the prognosis. I think that losing Justin Ross shouldn't keep them from winning the ACC. Um, but the question is, you know, how quickly can those guys that were freshmen last year, how quickly they can step up and 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 um, be the kind of guys that you know we've just come to expect that Clemson always has guy receivers that make big plays. Hey, I'm John Hayes, producer at The Athletic, and have a message from our sponsor, Manscaped. If you're bored in the house, bored in the house, bored, why not spend some time on yourself? Our sponsor today, Manscaped, is here to make sure you're well-groomed above and below the belt. Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving, thanks to their lawnmower 3.0. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming. While you're probably looking for some new things to do at home, why not make manscaping part of your routine? It's precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. This third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents. Shaving is about to be nick-free thanks to Manscaped Advanced Skin Safe Technology. Subscribe to the perfect package and get a new replacement blade refill for your lawnmower. Trimmer delivered to your door every three months, making sure your trimmer always stays fresh and clean. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off 
with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code THEATHLETIC. Now back to the Audible. All right, Stu, let's get to the mailbag. As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. The first question is from Kyle in Buckhannon, West Virginia. As much as it kills me to do this, I'm becoming a big Notre Dame fan because of the Golick family on ESPN and their family podcast. This is hard to admit as a WVU fan, still pissed about the 1989 championship game. However, my question is because so much focus is put on national championships, do you think that Notre Dame fans would trade hiring Brian Kelly and his success that they've had with him versus Urban Meyer actually accepting the job years ago when it was rumored to be offered to him because all of Urban's programs seem to have scandals of one sort or another, but he wins national titles. Do you think Notre Dame would trade that for Brian Kelly and the seemingly clean program that he runs, but no national titles? What do you think, Stu? Well, I mean, I don't think any fan base is um, homogenous. I'm sure there are Notre Dame fans that would make that trade. I would doubt that they would be in the majority. And I certainly think that the school itself, I mean, if Brian Kelly retired tomorrow, you know, they may, you know, yes, Notre Dame made a hard run at Urban Meyer way back in uh, 2004 when he chose to go to Florida instead. He has been quoted by saying it was his dream job, but no, in 2020, I do not think Jack Swarbrick and, and Notre Dame's um, board or president would sign off on him because they do take their reputation very seriously. They do, um, think of themselves as a clean program. They did have an NCAA, uh, infractions case a few years ago over, um, some improper academic assistance. Um, I don't think on the grand scheme of things, it would be considered massive cheating or anything, but they did have that stain. But for the most part, um, you know, I'm sure the fans there get frustrated at times with Brian Kelly, uh, that they, they haven't been able to get over the hump, win the big one. But no, I, I don't think they would take Urban Meyer and all the, the baggage that comes with him at this point, certainly not after the Zach Smith situation at Ohio State. If I were to ask you and say, do you think more than 50% of the fan base would want would do that trade, Urban Meyer, for Brian Kelly, you would say it's under 50%? Yeah, I would say it's under 50%. I, I don't know what the exact number would be. Um, Notre Dame strikes me as a fan base that, I mean, there's a lot of things that um, that are generational there. I mean, I think that there's probably a bit of a generational split among the people about feeling about the importance of being independent. You know, I think that probably the older you are as an alum of that school, the more rigidly you cling to that. There are certainly Notre Dame fans that would, that I'd actually like for them to join a conference. Um, and I think that's true with a lot of things, but, um, I don't know, maybe I'm being a little too naive, but, uh, no, I don't think, I think that might've been a different question. I think I would feel differently about this pre Zach Smith. Cause before that you really would have had to have gone back to Florida to bring that stuff up about urban. He hadn't really had any, um, thing that happened at Ohio state that you consider to be baggage until the Zach Smith situation. I just think that totally changed the equation. I could certainly be wrong, but my hunch is that the percentage would be over 50%. But again, I, I base that on nothing about the Notre Dame fans that I know. Um, and maybe I'm wrong, but we should get the get. Yeah. We should get, um, the hosts of the shamrock, Pete Sampson and Matt Fortuna, who are who have the pulse of the Notre Dame family, to answer this question for us. Yes, I'd be curious to hear their thoughts on that, uh, who they agree with on that. And look, you might be right. 
The next one from Ratha Hartha in Los Angeles. Bruce and Stu, great podcast as always. I'm a little bummed with your interview about Bubba Cunningham. Um, this is not this this feedback from the Bubba Cunningham interview is not unique actually. Um, you guys let him off the hook when he completely ignored Stu's question about the salaries of Roy Williams and Mac Brown. Why is it that the men's basketball and football coaches' salaries are all determined by capitalism, but the player compensation is socialism? Why do the reallocated resources to football and basketball players come out of other sports instead of the salaries of the coaches and administrators? Can you get an administrator to answer that question? And how do you guys square this inequality, especially as coaches' salaries have skyrocketed over the last 20 years? I think that is a fair criticism. I, I do. And I think there's a lot of people who look at that as see as a hypocrisy of college athletics. Um I don't know how many administrators would would tackle that with an answer that would seem satisfactory. I, I, I'm, I mean, those conversations occasionally are, are you have them, and you know what I felt like with Bubba Cunningham's uh, viewpoint was he had a very um, determined set of this is how I think college athletics are and what they're about, and because it was seen as you're getting an education and I think that it, it kind of was like, Hey, we're not professional sports, even though there's a lot of pieces to it that feel professionalized. And I just think that it's, it's hard for a lot of people to, to work around if, if you come from it, from that, that perspective, there's no give on it. We knew we were going to be talking to him about NIL. That was the primary reason for the interview. And I think it's important to hear different perspectives. I mean, I, I fully admit to being guilty of you know, spending a lot of time interviewing people or, or reading things about people who are just, you know, totally in favor of, of NIL and of, of athletes being able to profit off their name, image, and likeness. And um, it's important to hear other perspectives as well. I think where we maybe our eyebrows were raised a little bit was just in terms of kind of how rigidly he frames things you know he said in our interview there's the pro model and there's the collegiate model and the pro model is that the players share in the revenue and the collegiate model is that they don't um and that by signing up to play college sports you are acknowledging that the money you help raise is going to go to non-scholarship or non-revenue athletes our listener is right that doesn't really take into account and kind of dodge okay but what about the coaches and their multi-million dollar salaries I'm not somebody who thinks that you know coaches' salaries are insane and they 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 get paid way too much. Like I've actually made the point that, for instance, Nick Saban, as much as he makes, you could probably make a pretty good argument that he's worth even more, um, given how much benefit he has provided to that university in the time he has been there. So, but but that can be true, and it can also be true that the players deserve to get more and. Um, I think that the automatic instinct among administrators of, well, if we start having to pay these guys, then it's going to, the first people that are going to be affected are the non-revenue athletes. Well, why? Uh, you know, you don't have to, yes, you, you know, market rate determines what the coaches and the ADs for that matter make, but you're not required to pay it. You know, you, it's up, totally up to you how you allocate your resources. Okay. The next question, Stu, is from Ian McFarland from La Cunada, California. Bruce and Stu, thanks for continuing to record amidst the quiet period. I have little doubt that is difficult, but it is very much appreciated. Thank you for those kind words. Ian, uh, is there a single scenario where the Pac-12 comes out of this COVID-affected season in a better national position than before? 
I'm an LA resident and a lifelong Washington fan, but it just doesn't look like it is a possibility. What is the fate of these seemingly doomed? What is this fate, <laughs> fate of this seemingly doomed conference? Functional demotion to on par with the AAC splitting up absorption. Can you use your imagination? Uh, thanks, guys, and bring back Petros. We hear him every day, and he is great. But we're looking for things from a national perspective. He's just the best. Petros is the best. I agree with that. I hope Ian's being over intentionally over the top here. Um, the Pac-12 is not going to be. Uh, absorbed or demoted. Um, now, I want to point out when I was picking out these questions, Ian's question came in on May 18th. I went back and looked. That was the week that everybody freaked out and thought the Pac 12 wasn't going to have a football season because one of the Cal State uh, University systems, the one of the Fresno State, San Diego State in it, announced that they were going to hold, you know, predominantly if not entirely online classes this fall and and there were a couple other things as well like the Oregon governor that was the either the day or the week that she announced no fans at uh, sporting events through at least September things have calmed down since then I think all all signs point to the Pac-12 you know the teams the players will come back on June 15th which is not that much different than the rest of the country everybody's planning to start the season um, and I would actually say that there is one COVID affected um possibility that could actually work to the Pac-12's favor. And we've talked about it on here before. We talked about it with Barton Simmons. I think you're going to see some of these West Coast, top, top-notch top West Coast recruits who have been leaving the West Coast for to play college, staying closer to home, at least for this year, maybe even for a couple years after that, um, because of the pandemic, because of this situation we've all gone through where people... Um, sheltered in place for a long time and and where it was absolutely a place time when you wanted to be closer to your family and you might be less likely to go play somewhere 3,000 miles away um, and that would certainly help the Pac-12 the self-defeatist attitude among a lot of Pac-12 fans right now I think has gotten a little out of hand there are definitely some there are definitely real issues that that conference is dealing with there's no question about it um, but they're not going to be a group of five conference let's let's keep this in perspective here if anything they were not the worst power five conference last year the acc was yeah i agree with you on your point about the recruiting piece of that obviously we'll have to see how this all unfolds but i do think that there is the potential of 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 that keeping that at home and we'll see how uh name image and likeness also affects these these programs when that comes more into play in 2021 and going forward Another, and also, well, two things I would add. One, you know, I think as USC goes, the Pac-12 goes, and obviously it's been a mess there recently. I do think USC will get its act together here soon, whether it's under Clay Helton or a different coach, and part of that is because they finally have a competent AD in Mike Bone. They haven't had that in a long time. Um, you're starting to see the effects of that in recruiting right now, where after having a... a you know, extremely low rated class last year. They are, you know, they've already got what two of the top 10 quarterbacks in the country commitments from and um, top five class right now. Yeah. I mean, but look, let's also keep in mind too, though, that we expect a lot of decommitments, not necessarily from USC, but I think let's take the commitment piece of this a little bit more with a great gain, uh, grain of salt as we're in a different time for recruiting this, 
this year than normal years. Uh, next question is the other one. Well, real quick, the other point I was going to bring up, and I don't, I haven't really seen this talked about much, but if, when the transfer, we expect that in January they will uh, pass the one-time exemption for transfers to be immediately eligible. And I look at what SMU has been doing with Sunny Dykes, where they're they've been really taking advantage of the transfer portal and the fact that Dallas produces a whole lot of great, uh, a whole lot of um, FPS recruits. And there, a lot of them want, you know, if things aren't working out, they, and they are transferring to another school, they come back home. Certainly, you could see that happening in where a lot of LA kids who want a different change, of, you know, want to change their situation, and now they don't have to sit out a year, would transfer back to a Pac 12 school. Um, if there's scholarship I, space, that's the hard if part. If there's scholarship that. space, certainly. But yeah, I mean, um, JT Daniels just transferred to Georgia. That caught a lot of people by surprise. Um, he's in a position where, though, as a five-star recruit, as a guy who got a lot of attention as a freshman, could probably pick his spot uh, wherever that was in the country. Will we start to see that trend work in the other direction where West Coast kids who are playing in the Big Ten or the ACC or the SEC transfer back? I would, I would keep an eye on that possibility as well. So our next question is from Canada. It's Gordon Cameron in Burlington, Ontario. Good day, gentlemen. If you could only watch games played by a single college football team for the rest of your life, which one would it be and why? This is a great question. Um, I'm, I've thought a little bit about my answer. It's I want to be clear. like you, you can't pick this based on... It's not so much about the team itself as um, what kind of games will that team be playing in? What games will I want most likely to want to watch going forward? Because it's always possible that that team will not be good for an extended period of time. We don't know. I think I'd have to go with Ohio State um, because a they usually are really good and they really are in contention and they're playing in a lot of big games and and so you know every year you're going to see not just Ohio State Michigan. But they, all, they generally play one really good out-of-conference team as well. Um, they're going to play Penn State every year. They're going to play Michigan State every year. They're going to play some good crossover games. Um, I just think that that's your best bet if you want to make sure you're going to be watching relevant, compelling football for the rest of your life. And I think for you, probably, there's a you grew up in, Ohio, in the state of Ohio, and it's Big Ten football, and you're going to get that fix. So I could see that. Um, full disclosure, I mean, I, I went to Miami. I wrote a book about Miami. I know Miami has not been great in the last few years and really much of the last 15 years. But if we're done the rest of my life, I mean, I'd probably say that um, just because I have a connection to the history of the place. Um, I guess that would be my answer. It is a good question, though. So when you say Miami, you're saying it because of your connection to your alma mater or because I mean, you are so I think well. It's more than that. It's just I mean, I wrote I wrote a book about the program. I feel like I know a lot of people who built the program. Um, there, again, I I would have seen some pretty mediocre football if that was all I was getting yeah. in the last decade. That's why I'm worried for you because so, who knows when that's going to end? Yeah. I mean, obviously, this is a fanciful question. It's yeah. not reality. So, but I guess that's how I would probably answer it. Just because. Look, Alabama's been the best program in the last dozen years. Um, and look, they were great when Bear Bryant was there. They've been great for a lot of times. It wouldn't surprise me if they were great 10 years from now. And Nick Saban's probably not going to be the head coach. But 
you know, you're kind of taking a flyer on any program. Right. I mean, the programs that have had the most sustained, and like you said, Ohio State has had that. Um, but it's just, okay, is there a little bit of a connection to the program too? And that's that's kind of why I answered that. I mean, your answer is, is, is entirely reasonable too. And I didn't grow up an Ohio State fan. Uh, I think I went to one game in, at the Horseshoe, um, I, coincidentally against Northwestern when I was in high school. Um, I thought about Alabama. I thought about USC. I thought about Oklahoma and Texas. Um, I thought about Michigan because basically everything I said about Ohio State would be true for Michigan in terms of the playing in the big games and the relevant games. But I think it ultimately came down to, and I've pointed this out many times, Ohio State is the one blue blood program that in my lifetime has never had an extended period of mediocrity. Like one bad season here or there, but other than that, winning 10, 11, 12 games more, contending for national titles. So I feel like if I picked Alabama and then they took a nosedive after Nick Saban retired, that I would just be like, oh, why didn't I pick LSU or why didn't I pick Georgia or somebody else? So uh, fun question. Thank you for that one, Gordon. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We hope you guys have enjoyed this podcast, obviously a much different podcast than we usually do. Um, you can give us your feedback. You can always, uh, give us suggestions for guests going forward as well as your questions for these mailbag segments, the audible pod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy the audible, please subscribe on Apple podcasts, Google play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a review and a rating. If you could too, it helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. Talk about it for